Well, we've been walking through Psalm 2 during this, uh, these four Sundays before Christmas. And this is our third Sunday. We'll uh, be focusing on verses 7 to 9 today, but again, we'll be reading the entire psalm. Christianity, of course, is all about Jesus, who came to earth 2,000 years ago in Palestine. But hundreds and even thousands of years before he came, his coming was repeatedly promised and described in the scriptures. And the first significant cluster of these, what we call messianic prophecies, came during the time of King David. It began in 2 Samuel chapter 7, when God promised King David that after he was gone, one of his sons would reign on his throne forever. Strange Strange though that sounded. More information about the promised son of David was given by, in a psalm that David wrote, the psalm we're studying, Psalm 2. And that's why we're studying it in these weeks before Christmas. So, let's read Psalm 2. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, as for me, I have set my king on Zion my holy hill. And now comes the part we're focusing on this morning. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. And now the last three verses, which we'll talk about next week. Now therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Now, I've said that Psalm 2 is one of the most quoted passages of the Old Testament in the New Testament, and always referring to Jesus. For example, Hebrews 1.5 quotes the very verses we're going to be focusing on this morning. In Hebrews 1, the author is arguing about how Jesus is superior to the angels, and he asks To what angel did God ever say, Thou art my son, today I have begotten thee? Which is the very thing that is said in verse 7 of our passage. So let's walk through this uh, 
these three verses because there's actually a lot of reason for confusion here. The first thing to say is that Psalm 2, in Psalm 2, God is not alone in the picture. God sits in the heavens, but he's not alone there. There's another great figure with him. We see this in verse 2, where the rulers and the, the kings and rulers of the earth set themselves against the Lord and against his anointed. And remember that this Hebrew word translated here, anointed, is the word Messiah. And then in verse 3, where the kings and rulers are saying, let us burst their bonds asunder and cast away their cords from us. It's in the plural. It's not just talking about God in the singular. And in response, in verse 6, God speaks and says, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. So all through just the first six verses, we already see this very definite two-ness about God in sitting in heaven. Now this is not the only psalm that's like this, by the way, where God has another there, a partner of some kind. In fact, Psalm 110 is very similar to this. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand and I will make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Ride in the midst of your enemies. So very similar kind of language there. Well, in Psalm 2-7, the other figure, this anointed one, this king set up by God on Zion, speaks. And that's what's going on as we make the transition from verse 6 to verse 7 we find all of a sudden that not that God who has been speaking isn't speaking anymore. It's this other one who's with him. This Messiah, this king that, he's, that God has referred to. He speaks. And this is what he says. I will tell of the decree the Lord said to me. So he refers back to God. And he refers to something that God said to him. You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. So let's look at this saying that the son or the Messiah says God said to him and here we really see David beginning to unwrap and I'm not I'm not saying that David understood the doctrine of the Trinity but God inspiring David as a prophet begins to unwrap the doctrine of the Trinity by telling us something that God the Father says to God the Son, You are my Son. Today I have begotten you. Now we've already seen clearly in the first part 
about how David, uh, the promised one who would come would be the son of David. But now far greater than this, it's revealed here that he's not only the son of David, he's the son of God. And verse 7 isn't the only place even in this psalm that refers to him as the son of God. In verse 12 at the end, he says, kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish. So this, all this picks up on God's original promise to David in 2 Samuel 7. And let me just read a couple verses there so you see. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. Obviously in that original statement you can't really tell what that means because sometimes this kind of language is used of God treating someone like a father. But here in later on in Psalm 2 we find out that this means much more than that. This means a begotten son. So how can a human being who comes from David's body be the son of God? Well, Gabriel really answers this question when he comes to Mary in Luke 1.35 and says, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. This Messiah, Jesus, is both begotten of David and begotten of God. Understanding all this, of course, helps us suddenly realize that much of the New Testament is actually based on Psalm 2. For instance, Nathaniel, when he first encounters Jesus in John chapter 1, 49, and realizes who he is by, you know, Jesus reading his mind, basically. And he utters, he says, Rabbi, you are the Son of God and the King of Israel. Well, it's like he had his quiet time that morning in Psalm 2. That's where that comes from. But the confirmation of the fact that Jesus is the fulfillment of Psalm 2 is... Nowhere more clear than at the Lord's baptism and at the Mount of Transfiguration. When in both situations, God himself spoke out of heaven, This is my son. This is my son. Remember, we have just finished... Verse 6, when we come to 7 to 9, which said, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. And now as we move to verse 8, we learn that this king will not only rule over Israel, which is what you think when you say it's, he's set on Zion, but he won't just rule over Israel, he will rule over all the nations. The, God's promise to David in 2 Samuel 7 all of a sudden begins to make sense when he says that he is 
going to have an eternal reign. So you see, in Psalm 2, we see that, you know, from the very beginning of the Bible, God made it clear that he was the king of the nations, right? He was the ruler over all. But now we see God, God's throne and rule over all the nations merging with the son of David's throne and his ruling over Israel. And now we're finding out they're really the same thing. Yet even though kingdom includes every nation on earth, God has set his king not on the throne of Rome or the throne of Washington, D.C. or the throne of Beijing, China. He has set his king upon Zion. And what's the significance of this? Well, most of the inhabitants of the earth at the time would have not even ever heard of the Jews as a people. So for God to, you know, he's obviously not just looking for the greatest city or he would have chosen a different one. But now it is Zion he chooses to be sort of the, the capital city of his worldwide empire. Well, it was because God was rooting his, this worldwide kingdom in Israel, in the Jewish people, because the Messiah King was to come from the Jewish people. As Romans 9, 5 says, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. So out of this insignificant, at least politically speaking, from the world's point of view, this insignificant little people group, God has chosen for his Messiah to be raised up to rule over all the world with an, a rod of iron. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. And the Apostle John has a strange vision in the book of Revelation in chapter 12 of a woman clothed with the sun. A woman clothed with the sun. And to make it clear that he's talking about her son being Jesus, Revelation 12.5 refers to him with language from Psalm 2, verse 9. It says, she gave birth, this woman clothed with the sun, she gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. We know who that is, don't we? That's Jesus. So we have here, what we, we have here in Psalm 2, the description of a promised king who would rule over all the nations of the earth. But now, here we are, 3,000 years later from when David wrote this, this, this king has come in the person of Jesus Christ. But how exactly does he rule over all the nations on earth? Well, the answer to that is threefold. In other words, there are three manifestations of Christ's kingdom or of his kingly rule over the earth. 
First of all, as king, Jesus rules over the earth and its rulers today. Now this may sound strange, but even now, King Jesus rules over all the kingdoms of the world, though his rule right now is hidden, later to be revealed. And he rules the world with an iron rod. That is, there is no flexibility, there is no negotiation, there is no compromise. Things do exactly what God ordains them to do. His enemies may intend things for evil, but though the nations rage and the peoples plot vainly against the Lord, in response he laughs. They are powerless. They can do nothing. Nothing can happen unless King Jesus allows it. How else could God's people face a hostile world? How could we persevere through grief, hardships, losses? What do we have to hold on to to give us strength to make it from one day to the next? Well, what keeps us going is knowing that Jesus is the King of Kings who rules from his throne in heaven even though that throne is now invisible to most of the mankind. And we know also that when Jesus does give permission for painful things to happen to his people, he makes sure they are for their good and always just what they need. So that's the first way that we see that Christ is man King Jesus is manifesting his kingship and his rule over the earth today. But there's another way. In Matthew 28, 18-20, we're told that just before Jesus, you know, where Jesus, right before he was ascended to heaven, spoke to his disciples, he said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. We call that the Great Commission. And even the Great Commission seems to be based on Psalm 2. First acknowledging this king's authority over all the earth, and then instituting a mission to carry out to carry his kingdom and its king to all nations that they might become his followers, his disciples, his worshipers. And so you see that uh, this is the second way that his kingly rule is manifested in the earth. Today people from every group, every nation, every language, every tribe are being brought into his kingdom and acknowledging Jesus as their king. So what's happening in the world today? What do you think is the most significant thing that's happening on planet earth in 2021? I would say it's this right now. Jesus is going through the world from our hometown here to home island in the Indian Ocean. And everywhere in between, taking some from every people group on earth to be his own, 
to serve him with fear, to rejoice with trembling, to kiss the Son, to take refuge in him. All language from next week's passage. His kingdom, which is our family, is getting bigger and bigger as this mission assignment that Christ gave to his disciples before he left is carried out to the ends of the earth. God said to his son, I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. And that's happening. And when Jesus comes, he says to his father, I mean, when he came 2,000 years ago, he said to his father in the high priestly prayer, you have given me authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all you have, you have given me. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. So, all of this is leading to a great climax where a great multitude, which no one can number, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, stand before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, and cry out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And so you see, it's not only that God rules over the earth sovereignly today for the, uh, for the welfare of his people, but he's also sending them forth to every corner of the earth to bring in more to worship him and more to be members of his kingdom. But there's still more to how God manifests his authority over the nations today or in the earth. When this process that we've been talking about of gathering to himself all the Father has given him, when that process is over, we're told that Jesus will return in glory to deal with the rest of mankind. This is the judgment day. The great day of resurrection when every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord and when he will dash them to pieces like a potter's vessel. Verse 9. This also is a manifestation of the Father making the nations Christ's heritage and the ends of the earth his possession. And Revelation 11.5 describes the result of that day. It says, the seventh angel blew his trumpet and there were loud voices in heaven saying, the kingdom of the Lord, I'm sorry, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ and he shall reign forever and ever. I wish we could stop and sing the hallelujah chorus. The very last part, the very last part of this process is described in 1 Corinthians 15, 21 to 26. For as by a man came death, so by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ 
all will be made alive. But all will be made alive, each in his own order. Christ, the firstfruits, and then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end, when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father, after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. So here we're told that after destroying every authority and power, after putting all his enemies under his feet, King Jesus will take the kingdom that he has won with his own blood and he will present it to, the, to his Father in all of its glory. I have accomplished, Father, what you have given me to do. And it will work towards the, to the glory of God. And what a day that will be. So, if, Je- if this is what Jesus is all about, if he is the king of the nations, and world domination is, is a, a, a surety of the future according to his promise, do you think he actually cares about our little problems? He sure does. He sure does. Remember when he came and he was walking down the street with a crowd of people and a woman came up behind him and touched his cloak. He stopped to turn around in order to minister to the woman personally individually and heal her according to her own needs and teach her. One time he was walking into a town with a big crowd and he passed a funeral procession. You know, we, we're out on the road and you pass funeral processions sometimes if you've been driving very long. A widow's only child had just died so she was left alone. Jesus didn't just watch them pass, didn't just wait quietly, respectfully until they'd all passed by. He stopped and he healed. He raised up from the dead the son that had died so that his mother wouldn't be alone. And when he was walking through Jericho, again, with a big crowd and a noisy crowd, He heard the voice of Bartimaeus, the blind man, crying out, Son of David, have mercy on me. And he stopped where he was. He said, bring that man to me. And he healed his blindness. So we see that this king is not just all about political maneuvering to arrange for his final kingdom and empire. Do we realize that we have a king like this? Do we act like we have a king like this? This isn't just something we wait for. This is someone we have. It is true that there is much distress and there is much misery and there is much pain in the world and that won't end until the Lord returns. 
It is true that all people long for relief from their struggles and pains, as Romans 8 tells us about. But the truth is, right now at least, we don't need relief from our suffering. We don't need good health. We don't need good food. We don't need financial security. We don't need a good job or a good boss. We don't need a good husband or a good wife. We don't need a good mother or a good father. We don't need a good president or a good congress. All we need is a good king. All we need is a good messiah. And that's exactly what we have in Jesus. The king of kings is our helper, our brother, our friend. He is our savior. He could have summoned legions of angels to deliver him, but instead he yielded to his crucifixion and despised the shame for the joy set before him, which was the joy of bringing his people to himself. The members of the Trinity have been living in the closest fellowship since all eternity in deep mutual love between them. In Psalm 2 we get a glimpse of the relationship between the Father and the Son. But the amazing thing is that now in Christ we've been welcomed into that loving fellowship. We've been invited to join in their dance of love. As 1 John 1 says, indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. We said earlier that God is not alone in Psalm 2 about Jesus in the book of Revelation. He's not alone there either. Not only is God the Father with him though, but he is surrounded by his people as well. In Revelation 1, for instance, the vision of Jesus there, he's walking among the lampstands, which are his churches. In Revelation 4 to 5, the vision there, he's surrounded by a great multitude of his people. And so on through the book. Revelation 17, 14 is a good example. It says, he will make war on the Lamb. I'm sorry, they will make war on the Lamb, and the Lamb will conquer them. For he is Lord of lords and King of kings, and those with him are called and chosen and faithful. So now all of a sudden, we are there. We are included with him, with the Father. Christ is with us and we are with him. We read earlier the Great Commission and I left off the last verse which says, And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. And he is our Emmanuel, God with us. And you know what Jesus, King Jesus says in Revelation 2, 26 and 27? He Includes, he writes us into Psalm 2. 
Listen to what he says. The one who conquers and who keeps my words until the end. To him I will give authority over the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. As when earthen pots are broken in pieces. Even as I myself have received authority from my father. Amazing. The things that God bestows upon the son. The son turns and bestows upon his people. We are the heirs of Christ. The recipients of his blessing. As the son of God. And now as king. Jesus is on the throne. And he invites us into the throne room. With him. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with us, but one who is in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us with confidence, therefore, draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Hebrews 4. As John Newton said in the hymn, Thou art coming to a king. Large petitions with thee bring. For his grace and power are such, none can ever ask too much. But we also must be patient. When Jesus was born, not many came to worship him. And when he died, it certainly didn't look like he was the king of kings and lord of lords. He had only a few followers and his disciples were hiding in fear. But here we are 2,000 years later and there are Christian believers in virtually every nation on earth. And the New Testament has been translated into something like 1,300 languages. 1,300 languages, which is just an amazing sign of the progress of the gospel over the last 2,000 years. I don't know if you've ever been down to the Museum of the Bible, but they have a room which just has a library of translations of the Bible. And every single one of those was forged with such blood, sweat, and tears. And to think of all of those people that were involved in that, and all of the sacrifice, and all of the time, and all of the love that drove them to do it, to think about all that has been accomplished for the sake of Christ and for his kingdom these 2,000 years. He is the king of kings. And the, prod, the work is not done. But we've come so far. God has given the ends of the earth to him as his possession. So do not despise the day of little things. As we read in Zechariah 4.10. And cast all your anxieties on him. Because he cares for you. Let us pray. O King Jesus, it is 
such a blessing to be able to participate in your great for Lord you were king even when you were crowned with thorns even when you were hung up on the cross you were winning a victory now Lord help us as we sometimes feel like we're being crushed by the burdens by the pressures by the persecution of the world oh Lord to realize that we serve a triumphant Christ who is triumphing even as we feel weighed down even as we bear our pain and our sorrow help us to carry our crosses O Lord help us to follow you help us to trust that in the end we will be there we will see it and we will ourselves be crowned with our Christ and we will take our crowns and throw them before you O Lord in worship we pray all this in the precious name of Jesus Amen